Next, Gene Shepard, and at midnight, all night with Wingate. Things are going so awfully well in Yugoslavia. Slav Don Vasik bit off more than he could chew. A drinking party got out of hand, and Vasik bit off the ear of his the ear of his good friend Zlatar. Apologizing later, Slavovia pleaded, "Forgive me, forgive me. Please forgive me for biting off your ear." I can't. You made me ugly," replied his friend. Whereupon Slobdanian produced a knife and slashed off one of his own ears. They are now friends again. Reset that, please, if you will. Hello, test. I'm just getting everything ready here. Hello. That's very good. Uh, reset that there. Bit off the ear of his friend. <laughs> shades of, uh... Shades of, uh... I'll give you a clue. Uh, who was the famous artist that cut his ear off? I mean, in a fit of rage because he had a bad agent. Who was that? Now, that really happened. No, you're correct. That's right. Matisse. Claude Matisse cut off his ear and uh, gave him a fantastic perspective. And that's why he's known for his, you know, the beautiful feeling that he has in his paintings. That, uh, yeah, he uh, cut his ear. Yeah, Matisse, no ear. But uh, we uh, would like to tonight, before we do anything else here, you know, get uh, too involved in all these uh, esoteric uh, cultural things here, uh, we have a couple of things that we'd like to take care of. We have to... Uh, as you know, uh, sports are becoming a fantastic national, uh, almost a national uh, uh, 
probably hang up, really. I mean, as uh, you hear sports, uh, only in our time would uh, would uh, Howard Cosell be a major star. Only in our time. And uh, uh, has it occurred to you that Howard Cosell is the W.C. Fields of sport? That uh, if uh, if uh, <laughs> if W.C. Fields were alive today, <laughs> he'd be working for ABC. But uh, that's a uh, you know, probably doing the news, matter of fact. But that's a uh, that's you know that's uh, neither here nor there. I, I uh, nevertheless do feel that the sports are becoming a national uh, a national mania. And uh, remember the old days when they used to say that uh, the one thing that's going to draw a man together is sports. Remember people used to believe such such totally naive stuff. Yeah, they used to believe that 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 was the thing. Yeah, yeah sports, uh, uh, the the good clean, the thrill of competition and all that. Of course, you've been hearing what's been going on at the Moscow games, haven't you? You know, 90-minute fist fights down there <laughs> with the, in the basketball. And uh, what happened after the Israelis won a basketball game? There were <laughs> everybody who cheered for them was, was chased down the street. And uh, oh, they, and, and so anybody who feels that the that the sports are going to bring about uh, international rapport simply doesn't know his you know what from a banjo about sports. Now, I, I uh, having been involved in sports more or less all of my life, both as a participant and as an observer, I have never had this illusion. Have you, Jerry? No, there's got to be a day. There's got. It's it's slowly beginning to approach. What with the growth of Bobby Riggsism, and uh, and uh, Billy Jean Kingism, and all that, it's got to happen one day, right in front of all those people. A tennis player is going to go run up to the net, leap over the net after the final point has been scored, and smash his opponent with a fantastic left hook, and then run out and chase the officials right out of the, you know, right on Channel 13. It's going to happen on the educational channel. Then they're going to realize that uh, sports are uh, not what they seem to be. Uh, you know, have you noticed that, that educational-type uh, people seem to think that certain kinds of sports are really sports, other kinds are not? Uh, tennis is a real sport. And it's somehow an intellectual achievement. And yet I've known tennis players, and, uh, and uh, I've found them very little different from any other kind of athlete. Mean, uh, slit eyes, uh, money-grubbing. Oh, let me tell you, some of the most money-grubbing men I've ever known in my life are tennis players. Maybe it's because you wear white shorts, and you wear a, a white T-shirt, and you appear on that beautiful green grass. <laughs> that it seems that it, uh, it's just a clean sport. Well, let me tell you, uh, things, are, things are changing rapidly, and there's going to be a shock moment. Wait, oh, well, we've seen one of the best infighters in the world of the competition today is, uh, is uh, Bobby Fischer. Uh, he's made uh, chess into, uh, into something else. I mean, uh, you know, and eventually, watch, every, every major chess tournament, every major grand uh, master international type will come complete with a psychological warfare expert who will uh, sit next to him and <laughs> prepare psychological ploys to use on the opponent. One chess player will suddenly show up wearing a gigantic rubber mask. You know, one of these gorilla masks. And uh, every time the guy is about to make a movie, he'll go, Aah! You know? <laughs> All right, a little over, yeah. Yeah! He'll carry his own bullhorn with him, say. Just aim it right at his opponent as he's, he's trying to move uh, the queen from uh, Q7 to QD. And... 
then, of course, they'll have to make all kinds of new rules about rubber masks and bullhorns. And, but that'll happen. Oh, it'll happen. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, of course, uh, we, we've got to realize that this is not, uh, this is a, a comparatively recent development uh, in America. We, we, we are not used to the fact that in many other countries, sports are mortal affairs. They're involved in nationalism. They often involve uh, tremendous uh, mass violence, often mass death and destruction. In fact, it, uh, it's an old uh, slogan, uh, uh, be careful on a Sunday afternoon when you go to any kind of a soccer game in Latin America. Uh, take along your asbestos suit because the, the, the stands are regularly set fire to <laughs> in, 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 in uh, you know, places like uh, Venezuela, you know, Caracas, uh, 274 die uh, in, in the middle of a soccer game. Oh, yeah, and they continue to game. They don't stop the game. You know, they just carry away the wounded and the dying, and, and uh, they come and squirt foam all over the stands and put the fire up, but the game goes on. Now, uh, this, uh, this has got to happen in America. It has not yet occurred. And it will happen one day. We've seen little evidences of it. The other day, there was a little thing, uh, wasn't it, when, the, when a football player was going to go up into the stands and fist fight the entire crowd, and they were yelling and throwing beer bottles at him? You, you, you heard about this, right? Well, uh, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that when uh, two teams, uh, with the, uh, given the uh, kind of uh, fervor that pro football fans show, one little notch to the right on the big fervor knob, which we all have in our... Skull, uh, one little notch to the right could uh, could produce a tremendous explosion. Let's say uh, the Miami Dolphins, and I have no I have known no team that has more fanatical followers than the Dolphins. If you've ever been down there, uh, believe me, no matter what hour of the day, no matter what newscast you listen to, no matter what time of the year it is, the Dolphins are the number one news item. Uh, no matter what they're doing, uh, they'll, you'll hear on the on the news. You know, here it is. Uh, let's say uh, July, or let's say it's uh, uh, sometime when the football isn't even played. Let's say March. You know, they'll say Larry Zonka today bought a new set of furniture for his home on twenty seven thirty eight Coconut Way in uh, Palm Springs, uh, uh, Florida. And now to other news. Don Shula reported today that he had nothing to say. And now we move on to the weather. This is uh, this goes on and on down there. Fanatics, fanatics. Of course, it's the warm temperature that produces it. It's the tropical atmosphere. It's the great the, uh, it's the great hanging moon. It's the uh, soft waters of Biscayne Bay. All of this contrived to make man a highly volatile creature. You know, there's a it's a fact that as you as you approach the equator, man becomes more and more volatile. The Eskimos hardly ever say anything to each other. They just squat there next to their uh, uh, block of ice and eat blubber. Uh, we don't hear many. Uh, we don't hear many uh, military coups occurring in, a, in an Eskimo village, do we? Ed? Uh, see, this is Shepard's uh, theory that the closer one gets to the equator, the more volatile man gets. And it can be proven uh, if, if you if you know much about sports, you know that whenever whenever you're in a place where there's a lot of heat, I'm talking about physical heat. The sun is shining down there. Man, it's worth your life to go to any kind of a sporting event. It is indeed. So the time has got to come when uh, uh, Chris Schenkel or uh, uh, Kurt Gowdy or uh, Howard Cosell, any one of the great men of our time, 
is uh, is on there, and he says, uh, "Ladies and gentlemen, we're broadcasting you from the uh, from the Orange Bowl tonight, and that's going to be this great, fantastic game between uh, between the uh, New York Giants, and uh, we'll say the New York Giants and the <laughs> it'll have to be the Jets because uh, you know the New York Jets and the Miami Dolphins." Uh, the the excitement for this game has been growing for months, ladies and gentlemen. It's been fantastic. Uh, the, the the two teams are one percentage point apart uh, for the great uh, playoff bowl, which is just about to occur next month. Uh, the winner of tonight's game will win the will win the right to play in the playoff bowl. And uh, the the tremendous excitement has been growing month by month. And now, ladies and gentlemen, uh, it's time for the kickoff. And down there on the field. Uh, the the uh, <laughs> you can see eighty six thousand fans waiting, and of course there'll be a great contingent of Jet fans down there screaming, "Name it, name it, name it! Go, go, go! Defense, defense!" You know how they all holler. And on the other side, you'll see this great crowd of people hollering, "Zonka, Zonka, Zonka! Kill him, Zonka, Zonka! Yay, Zonka!" And uh, tremendous excitement. Well, then it has to happen midway in the second quarter. Down on the seven-yard line. The New York Giants runner, let's just take, for example, Randy Johnson, right? He tears off tackle. They have one yard to go for a first down. Off tackle he goes. He's hit hard by the defensive line of the Miami Dolphins. And then the whistles blow, and out comes the line judges. And they discover he has not made a first down by less than a quarter of a millimeter. And the excitement grows. Boo! 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 Zonka! Zonka! Go! Kill him! Zonka! Zonka! Go! 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 Well, then the Miami Dolphins begin to sweep towards the 50-yard line. They are now down on the 30-yard line of the New York Giants with the entire, as we know, the Super Bowl by that time will be worth over $7 million for each player. $7 million and a guaranteed picture contract, a seven-picture deal with the 20th Century Fox for every player plus a lifetime supply of Schick razor blades. And so they're charging down. <laughs> this is uh, <laughs> WOR New York. All right, George, we're an RKO General Station, and we'll give you a seven-picture deal any time you care to call. Hit the button, please. <laughs> Tonight, instead of Here's the usual Trey before Elegant. dinner, how about a Dubonnet before dinner? Tonight, before you fix the usual, before you settle down with the same old thing, have a Dubonnet instead. Dubonnet's the wine that's made to go before lunch, before dinner. Just pour it over the rocks. Add a twist. Soda, if you like. That's Dubonnet before. Made to make what comes after that much better. Before, yeah, before. The time before for Dubonnet. The time before Dubonnet. Company, New York, New York. Oh, is a ball. Uh, let's see. We have another little goodie here. One of the most dramatic changes in the field of independent school education is the desire of today's student to retain his family and community identity while preparing for college. And uh, this change has prompted the Cheshire Academy of Cheshire, Connecticut, a very good school, by the way, to introduce a five-day boarding plan starting the 17th of September. 
and they have an outstanding record, that's Cheshire Academy, of placing college candidates in colleges throughout the U.S. After 179 years, 179, I repeat, the average class size is still only 13 students, and they have openings in most grades. To solve any transportation problems, the Academy will also arrange for weekend bus transportation from selected metropolitan areas. This is that new five-day boarding plan. Cheshire offers a college prep course, grades 7 to 12, and postgraduate work. There is a co-ed day school community with local transportation arrangements. And if you'd like to find out about it, you better get on the stick fast because the 7th is coming up quick. Uh, you phone Cheshire Academy in Cheshire, Connecticut. And the phone number is area 203-272-5396. That's 203, area code, uh, 272-5396. Okay? And let's see. Uh, let's uh, get the... What do we got here? Uh, oh, you got another one in there for me? Fine. Hit it. When you ask tough questions, you'd better have the answer. And we do. The only answer. Do you know why you drink the beer you drink? Is it because it's the beer your father drinks? Is it the beer your buddies drink? Do you really like the way it tastes? Or do you drink it out of habit? When was the last time you had a really good tasting beer? A beer that went down easy. A beer that plain tasted great. Do you know there is a beer that tastes like that? Do you know it's Valentine beer? When are you going to drink something that tastes really good? Why don't you try a Valentine beer? Today. Who do we think we are asking these tough questions? We're the people with the answer. The only answer. Valentine. Oh, very official. Wow. Great, Scott. That's a scary commercial. Uh, brewed by P. Valentine Brewing Company, Cranston, Rhode Island. Never realized beer was that traumatic an experience. The only answer. Pump, pum pump. And uh, let's see. Uh, you know, I, 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 I have to say, though, that I, I, uh, I, I see a lot of very interesting things coming in the world of sports. Uh, it's, it's just on the way, man. And it's got to happen one day, right there in front of 700 million people watching a tremendous football game between, let's say, the Miami Dolphins and the New York Jets. An enormous riot will break out. It's just got to happen. And, <laughs> and I mean an enormous one. Crowds will pour down from the stands and uh, start fist-fighting it out, well, first with the officials, and then they will start on each other. Now, I don't know how Howard Cosell is going to handle that, personally. Uh, no, I'm, I'm very, very serious about this because, because there are many indications that are going on right now all over the world. And, you know, we're the first country... Uh, to, to be surprised at things like that, whereas in other countries it is not at all surprising that violence breaks out at major sporting events. In fact, when I was in, in uh, Glasgow, this was some time ago, I was in Glasgow back in the mid-60s, and I happened to be there over the weekend when the Glasgow football team, you know, the soccer team, uh, was playing... The team from Edinburgh. Now, this is a fantastic uh, rivalry. I mean, you can just imagine. It's a, it's, it's, we don't have anything like this. You know, it goes back to the Cro-Magnon days. Uh, I mean, the, the, ancient, uh, the ancient playing fields of, uh, of the Neanderthal men uh, are still being occupied by Neanderthal men. 
I might point out, nothing much has changed. And you, the, the entire town was filled with gigantic busloads of, uh, of Edinburghians, whatever they call themselves, who've come to watch their team kill the Glasgow team. And, of course, uh, 27 million hod carriers from Glasgow have arrived to see the reverse happen. And now they have stadiums there that seat like 150,000 people. You wouldn't believe the size of their stadiums. I mean, uh, you could put two Shea stadiums in one of their stadiums. You, you, you ever seen them on TV? There's incredible crowds. Well, it's a fantastic crowd showed up. And uh, I, I was walking around uh, Glasgow that day and uh, during the afternoon when they were playing this game. And uh, it was about 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Suddenly I started to hear these sirens. Uh, all over I could hear sirens going. And uh, I just, you know, I figured, well, just another riot's broken out someplace. And, uh, and I, I go into a pub, and, and they're watching this thing on television. And there's a lot of yelling going on in the pub. These guys are saying, okay! They're yelling things like, uh, you know how Scotsmen always are. Oh, and they're yelling and throwing stuff at the, at the TV set. Well, it turns out that a giant riot had broken out at the stadium now. And the police, the, uh, the militia, helicopters, and everything else were on their way there to quell what was going on out at the stadium. Well, like 26 people died, 147 people were injured, uh, seven players were taken to the hospital, uh, Edinburgh beat Glasgow by one point, and uh, there's been bad blood ever since. And, uh, you know, that, and I, I said, well, gee, you know, I come, came back to my hotel and I thought to myself, well, hell, you know, I always thought that the, that the Scotsmen were supposed to be such civilized people. Well, of course, I realized this is an American myth. Uh, it's simply a, uh, an American myth. That's all there is to it. Uh, in, uh, I saw another one. I, I happened to be listening. Did I tell you about the time I was in India? Uh, and uh, it was a Sunday. And uh, I finished the... Uh, uh, writing a letter or something. It was a quiet after it was hot out. It was, uh, it was outside of uh, Bombay. And, uh, oh, the temperature was really murderous. It was like uh, 120 degrees in the shade. And I was listening to a cricket game. Now, you think of cricket as being a very, very peaceful game, right? I mean, I always thought of cricket. Well, the, the Indian cricket team uh, was playing... A touring team from England, big team. This, uh, this, uh, I don't know anything about cricket, who they were, but they were... No, I'm sorry, it was the Australians. It was a big Australian team. And these were like the world champs at the time, this Australian club. And they were touring throughout India and taking on various clubs in Bombay and Karachi and places like that. And here they are playing the Bombay club. And uh, I've got the radio on. And this very distinguished announcer who was doing it in the very distinguished... English tones. He kept uh, saying things like, well, there is a one-over under bowler, and the wicket remains standing, and that is 274 for the Australians, 196 for the Bombay team. And there we have another pitch. It is a slow-bounding pitch to the off-end odd shot, and there is the throw, and that is out number six. Beautiful play at that point. And, you, know, they, they, you hear the crowd back, just a little bit. Wow! No, it's not big like ours, Ed. It just wow, wow goes. Well, I I wasn't paying much attention to the game since I am not uh, exactly a cricket fan, and I uh, I was writing away there, and suddenly I hear his voice is rising in intensity. 
It's all by joke. Uh, they're, they're out there on the fields now. Uh, there seems to be some sort of difficulty. Uh, there seems to be a great deal of smoke. Uh, uh, great Scott. Uh, uh, and and I, I, I turned up the radio, and I heard the crowd now. It's going... <laughs> sounded like an enormous horde of locusts have descended on the field. Well, this went on for about 20 minutes, and they suddenly switched it back to the studio where we got the sound of a guy playing what appeared to be a lute and uh, possibly a raga. And I, I waited to, to hear a, a further report, but nothing else came about. Uh, it was some, something that happened at the stadium. Well, I, I went out on the streets, and, and the, they always had these little places on the street corners in India where guys are squatting uh, next to a basket which contains a hooded cobra. Believe it or not, they actually have them. And next to him, usually, he's selling papers. <laughs> he'll do either way. He'll go either way you want. He'll sell you an old Reader's Digest. He'll sell you a newspaper or or, uh, or charm a hooded cobra for you. It doesn't matter, see? So I buy the paper, and there is a picture on the front page of a gigantic crowd of people milling around. I can see smoke and a lot of stuff. It says, riot breaks out that cricket stadium. 50,000 people riot. Well... There was a big editorial to the effect that the riot was caused by the announcer that I had been listening to. He was the Howard Cosell of Indian cricket. <laughs> and it seems that the, that what he had done was uh, along about the, the 28th wicket or the 43rd wicket or whatever the hell it is they're playing out there, he began to imply in his voice that that was a rather curious call by the umpire. Such things as, uh, by George, that looked uh, like an off-wicket to me, but uh, it is called uh, so-and-so. And the people are all sitting out in the stands with their with their earphones on and and listening to the transistor radio. They don't have earphones. I'm sorry. They, they had a little thing plugged in the ear, you know, and they're sitting there. And, and, and apparently in India, 50,000 people go to the cricket game, and 50,000 of them have transistor radios. And so this great home of transistor radios was what I was actually hearing. I was hearing transistor radios. Not the crowd cheering, but the radios. It's a, it, and there was a description of it in the, in the paper. It says that uh, when you go to this thing, it sounds like millions of crickets. Well, that's what I'd heard. They were all listening to the radio. Well, as, as he kept making these calls and questioning these calls, the crowd got angry and angry until all of a sudden he said something, and they came roaring out of the stands. Well... <laughs> They they also threw smoke bombs. They did everything. See, and the whole game was all called off, and uh, it was a whole big brouhaha, and like 274 people. Everything that happens in India, 274 people are mortally wounded. And uh, so they uh, they carted them all off to the hospitals. And uh, I, I, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I just thought, well, that's a very interesting phenomenon. That was all there was to it. But it wasn't all there was to it. Because the next day, I was in another part of India. I was catching a plane that night. And I flew to another part of India. I think it was uh, Ahmedabad or someplace like that. I was way off, like like a uh, thousand miles from Bombay. And uh, it is it is evening. And Indian evenings, by the way, are beautiful. No, as a matter of fact, it was Bangalore. I remember it. It was Bangalore. It was a beautiful city. It was cool. And I felt really great uh, to be there because it was so cool. It was the coolest. I'd run into India and all that time. It was really nice. It uh, felt like San Francisco or something. And I'm walking along at night, about 7 o'clock at night, and uh, just looking in the little windows of places and shops and stuff like that. 
And uh, there was an elegant shop there where they were selling silver. And I, I stood there. And I was looking in the window. And there's this guy standing next to me. He's looking in the window, too, see? And he was obviously not an Indian. And uh, I, uh, I looked. I says, you know, this stuff, uh, pretty good stuff they got here in Bangalore. It's one of the best cities in the in the in the country, you know, for for buying this kind of thing. And he said, uh, he said, yeah, I he said, I, I I heard the same thing myself. And I said, well, what do you say we go in and see what we can do? So we walked in there. I didn't know who he was. So we walked in there and we're milling around there, talking to the guy behind the counter. And on the way out, he says, uh, he says, I say, he said, uh, you're an American, aren't you? And I said, yes, I am. He said, uh, he sticks his mitt out, saves obviously. Uh, uh, either British or, or uh, possibly Australian. And he sticks his mitt out, and he's kind of a big guy, and he says, uh, uh, I, I don't remember his name. I'll use a fake name here for you. Oh, Jack Cranstraw here, Sydney. I'm from Sydney. And I said, well, fine, I've been in Sydney, Cranstraw. My name is Shepard. Oh, George, good to meet you. And I said, uh, uh, boy, uh, been in India long? Yeah, been here for a couple of weeks. Uh, boy, someplace, uh, first time I've ever been here. I said, well, you, you know, it's uh, some place I've been here for a while now, second, third time I've been here. And, and uh, I said, you one thing you miss about this time of the night is a, is, a, is, a, is a place to get a beer or something around here. You know, they don't, they don't serve liquors or anything here in India unless you really know somebody. He said, ah, how would you like to come back? He says, come on back in the room. The boys have got some beer going. I said, the boys? Yeah, I'm with a cricket team here. Turns out he was one of the cricket players. <laughs> and so I'm walking down the street with this guy. And he says, uh, he says to me, he said, uh, he says, uh, yeah, you know, you ever follow cricket? And I said, no, I don't. He said, oh, I says, okay, some game. He said, we had a hell of a time in Bombay, you know, yesterday. And I said, yeah, I hear. I said, that's a fantastic scene. He said, I never saw anything like it. He said, come out of the stands. He said, throwing smoke bombs and everything. He said, there I am in the middle of it all, and they're running all around me. And he said, they're... <laughs> and so he was astounded, too, see. And, and so we went back to the hotel room, and there was a whole bunch of cricket players all sitting around there, and a coach and a manager and a whole team, see. And it was the world champion Australians. And here they were, you know, it was unbeknownst to me, just by one of those things that happen to you in traveling, if you, if you keep loose. I am now sitting in a hotel room in Bangalore, India, with the world champion cricket team downing Australian beer. They had brought with them like 448 cases of beer. If you know anything about Australians, you know that, that beer to an Australian is like wine to a Frenchman. Uh, he, he, I mean, beer is serious, uh, is a serious thing with an Australian, and so they're not going to travel anywhere without their beer. So they're knocking down the beer. So I sat around there in the hotel room with a coach and a manager and all these guys. I know nothing about cricket, and we're all drinking beer. And so we get talking about sports. And, uh, he says, uh, you know, talking about American sports. And I said, uh, I said, well, I played baseball. I said, play ball. I played in the minor leagues and all that. The guy that I, that I was with, oh, he said, uh, he says, uh, he said, I'll be damned. He said, you know, he says, you know, I, I, uh, I was approached by an American, uh, baseball, uh, club, uh, to, uh, uh, to come to America and try out. He said, do you know, I, I play, uh, I play what, uh, what would be the equivalent in cricket. I play cat. I'm a catcher. And I said, you are. Well, he looked like a catcher. He was solid. And, you know, the, he looked like the Johnny Bench type. There's a certain type of, uh, when you play enough baseball, you can just look at a guy's physical characteristics and immediately tell what position he plays, if he plays at all. You agree with that, Jerry? So you can, you can spot a shortstop. You know, you know what a shortstop looks like. You know what a third baseman looks like. A first baseman has certain characteristics. And catchers certainly do. 
And uh, this guy looked like a catcher. And I says, really? Uh, he said, yeah. He says, uh, uh, a, a team with a strange name. He said, uh, 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 I never. He said, I heard of the city. He said, but they, they come he said, they come all the way. He said, they saw me in Sydney. And uh, this uh, man you call a scout, you have such things as scouts? And I said, yes, there are scouts. And he said, well, I, they wanted me to sign a contract and come to America and go to uh, what they call spring training. You have spring training there. And I said, yes, they do. Well, what's the club? I said, he said is, there, is there such a club called the uh, uh, Red something, uh, uh, a team? Uh, and I said, Cincinnati? He said, oh, that's the city, Cincinnati. Yes, of course. Well, I'll be damned. I had never heard that, that American Major League clubs were out scouting cricket teams for prospective major leaguers and uh i i suspect that even larry merchant doesn't know that <laughs> and, and so he said yeah he said they they came out he said they they wanted to me to sign a contract but he said i have a business you know in sydney and uh i'm doing quite well there and i felt that i i, I would not like to give up my career in uh, in australia and uh, come to the states you know and I said, well, I don't blame you. I mean, you got a thing going. And he said, uh, then he went out. He said, he said, oh, by the way, he said, is that a very good club? Well, at that time, uh, the Reds were not only a very good club, they were also known as the Big Red Machine. <laughs> I said, yeah, they are a pretty good club, as a matter of fact. I said, you could have done quite well. He said, well, he said, sometimes maybe I'll, I, uh, I, I regret not going, actually. And uh, so we sat around there and drank, uh, drank beer, and I drifted out into the night. And uh, I had a whole different attitude when I got out in the night then as to what sports is like in the world as opposed to what it's like in America. Uh, it would never occur to, to an American, for example, to, uh, to, uh, to set fire to Shea Stadium because of a bad call uh, by, by an umpire on a ball and strike. But I say it's going to come to that because you know what's going to cause it? The instant replay. I could just see all these these people sitting out there, you know, millions of guys sitting at the at the Miami's uh, uh, stadium there, at the, at the Orange Bowl or Shea or someplace around the uh, at the Soldiers Field or Wrigley Field or some big stadium where there's a great dynamic game going on, and uh, and uh, these guys are going to be sitting out there with their transistor radios. And somebody up in the stands, somebody up in the press box is going to have an instant replay and discover that the guy actually had scored. And they're going to lose out on the entire uh, Super Bowl, uh, the whole thing, because of a call by a referee. That's going to start it. And, and I have never seen, uh, in America, I have never seen an editorial that says, in effect, that violence was caused by the mass media and specifically say, yes, it was caused by mass media. But I did see it in India. And they had all kinds of editorials about the fact that this announcer had fermented and had, in fact, uh, instigated a riot in Bombay that cost uh, you know, a lot of people injuries and they wrecked the game and a whole bit merely because he... He didn't come out and specifically say that it was a bad call. He just expressed surprise on certain calls, and that was enough in the heat of the game. And uh, and they were listening to him out there. Now, had they not heard this, there was a, you know they're, they're sitting far away from the, the from the play. They would think, well, I just the angle is bad. <laughs> it just looked good to me, but it didn't look good. Probably the umpire saw it better. So so I say that one day we're going to see some fantastic things uh, in sports with the way it's going. You know. And uh, 
and uh, these, these recent uh, events in, in Moscow. Now, you see, I think it, it's kind of confusing to Americans to realize that many uh, foreign countries use sports as a, well, almost as a state propaganda medium. They, you know, they really do. So when the Czechs are beaten by... There's an incident that occurred here a few years ago that when the, the Czech hockey team beat the Russian hockey team, that the Czechs celebrated in, in Prague. And when they did start to celebrate in Prague, there was a tremendous reaction from the Russian soldiers in that area. And man, they clamped down on them like in five minutes. <laughs> this happened here about a year or two ago. Uh, because the, the, the game was not just a game. It was a game between two countries. It was a substitute war. And when a war is fought, people uh, become bloodthirsty. Uh, a war, and, and uh, even though it may be a symbolic war, it, uh, it's, uh, it, in some ways that's even worse. Because uh, the, and, and when you have referees, have you noticed that the referees in these uh, countries call things according to the country involved? We've seen this in the recent Olympics, when uh, when the, the the Iron Curtain block would have an entirely different set of points for a diver, we'll say, <laughs> than than say the non-Iron Curtain country judges. They they put out the the uh, the uh, the opinions, you know, the points nine point seven, six point nine, and all that, and it would be distinctly political. Well, that's that's a curious. Uh, uh, thing in America, I'm curious. We're not really quite used to that because we're a mobile people. See, uh, I think that the fact that most of us move around in our lifetime, and we have for maybe a hundred years, we've been very mobile people. We don't have the deep kind of hatred for other parts of our own country that they do in other countries. So the Edinburgh man looks upon the Glasgow man as a totally different and alien person in many cases because he's been living in Edinburgh. His family's lived there for 400 years, 500,000 years. And the Glasgow guy has lived in Glasgow for 1,000 years, his family. And so uh, and the Edinburgh people come, and they're going to beat the Glasgow people. Well, this is, a, you know, this, is a, this is a very traumatic experience to them because they think of themselves as, as, as uh, natives of Glasgow. And uh, we, we uh, you know, we move around. Our ball clubs move around. You know, so it makes a whole different ball game. And uh, ultimately, hey, uh, Ed, are you in there? Or would you please, if you will? I'm Astrid. Astrid Gilberto. Hey, you hear that beat? That's the rhythm of Rio. Rio de Janeiro. Cidade maravilhosa. The marvelous city, Ipanema, Copacabana, Bossa Nova, sun all day, samba all night. The people, they're called cariocas. They love fun. They love other people. Very clear lines. That's how you jet there. See you in Rio, okay? Ah, Vatty Airlines brings you a week in Rio for $509 with airfare, hotel, breakfast, transfers, sightseeing, the whole works. For a brochure, call your travel agent or write Varig, Box D, Staten Island. The price is based on low-season GIT, September 16th through November, January 16th through May. Box D, Staten Island, Varig. And, uh... 
Let's see, we have another one here. <laughs> hey, you know, uh, speaking of sports, uh, I, uh, uh, I, I before I before I go on with this, I, I, I want to get this uh, little spot out of the way here. We have uh, our old buddies, the Lexus Lachine, and uh, we would like to recommend their red Beaujolais. Of course, all Beaujolais are red, but this is a good, very good one. And it's a fine red wine. It's Alexis Lachine's Beaujolais. And uh, if you want to really try a good one, uh, I would like to suggest this Alexis Lachine, the beautiful Beaujolais imported from France in gracious, curvaceous bottles. They have an elegant bottle, too. It tastes fresh, light. It's a nice, light, dry wine. In fact, Beaujolais is the most popular French wine in America, Beaujolais. And uh, while other wines have increased their prices, Alexis Lachine is still at its same low price. It's really a good buy these days. And you'll enjoy this Beaujolais, so try it. Uh, Alexis Lachine, the anytime wine, imported by Bash Charrington Vintners, New York. Remember that elegant name, Alexis Lachine. Alexis Lachine, Alexis Well, uh, you know, speaking of great sporting events, uh, I would like to uh, salute. The, this is the kind of thing they just don't show on the wide, wide world of sports. But uh, we'd like to take, we'd like to take uh, recognizance of it. In Wilmington, Delaware, a 12-year-old Scott Spencer set a world pogo stick record by jumping 20,000, comma uh, 007 times in three hours and 17 minutes. Uh, he really went. Uh, in fact, he toppled the old mark of 12,775 hops, which, according to the Guinness Book of Records, was set last March by a kid in California when the skinny, bespectacled youngster stopped hopping after 20,000 hops. He explained that he wasn't tired, just hungry. And so, in true Delaware fashion, he celebrated by knocking down a gigantic submarine sandwich. Well, I always wanted to set some kind of world record, he said. And so the kid did. <laughs> And uh, that, that, you know, I'd love to see that on TV, a kid hopping up and down. And uh, speaking of great sporting records, we also would like to salute another uh, great sportsman uh, from Canadagua, New York. Is that how you pronounce that name? Canadagua, uh, New York, uh, Glenda Oberdorf, an elegant new champion in our, in our midst. Mrs. Oberdorf, 60, of Canadagua, took top honors in the rocking chair championship. The 17 hours... Uh, steady rocking uh, after the last opponent fell asleep early yesterday. And it was uh, really a toughly fought campaign. Officials said Mrs. Oberdorf, who won last year, your talent always uh, bobs to the top, she won last year when the contest was begun, uh, won $100 first prize. Last year, she kept her rocking chair moving for 41 hours. So the old gal is being a drop-off. But uh, nevertheless, her 17-hour shot... You know, stop and think about it. That's not, that's not easy to do, running a, a rocking chair for 17 hours. She now hurls, holds the world's record. And uh, she's a, obviously a fine champion. They don't say much about the, the people who competed against her. I, I'd like to see the, you know, the crowd standing around cheering. Uh, <laughs> bring it up there, please. You know, the old doll rocking back and forth. But... Uh, you know, there must have been a dramatic moment when her last opponent, after all the others have fallen by the wayside, her last opponent is rocking back and forth, and suddenly the rocking chair slows to a stop, and the onlookers hear a quiet snore. 
Oh, man. Uh, I, I, uh... I, I, uh... <laughs> I just think that uh, we're in for some great times in the future, friends. Well, with a Super Bowl getting bigger, with the uh, World Series getting more enormous, with fistfights breaking out in basketball games, shootings. Eventually, I suspect that we're going to have to do what they do in other countries now. That all people who come into a stadium in many countries today are searched for weapons before they come in. And uh, that'll have to happen out of Shea. Uh, or perhaps uh, the Orange Bowl, when the first outbreak of true violence occurs on the sporting fields of good humor and good honor sportsmanship. Bring it up there, please, if you will. Remember Casey Stengel's famous line, it ain't how you play the game, it's whether you win or not. That counts. Nobody remembers losers, but the, the winners get in the Hall of Fame. Stan Lomax always says, home run hitters drive Cadillacs. Singles hitters become sports announcers. And write books on how rotten baseball is. This is WOR New York and RKO radio station. Stay tuned for John Wingate. You're a young psychiatrist. You've made it. If you're cynical, you take a look at...